I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Wait a minute. I need to tee up some music for the right mood. Yeah, there we go. Our guest is a rock star CFO. Behind his back, I'm calling him the CFO of all CFOs. Jack McCullough is the author of Secrets of Rock Star CFOs, which is our topic in this episode. Jack is the president and founder of the CFO Leadership Council, serving just under 2,000 CFOs. Their mission is to empower CFOs. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks, and our visit with Jack is coming up next. Which, by the way, if Jack is a rock star CFO, I wonder what he thinks of Keith Richards. Okay, for you Keith Richard fans, that was not him in the music bed. Uh, yeah, not in the budget. No way. Ron Baker is a co-host of my favorite podcast of all time, The Soul of Enterprise. He calls himself a recovering accountant. So I just had to ask our guest, Jack McCullough, if he's a recovering CFO. It's funny. I never thought of myself that way. But now that you bring it up, I, I think it's fair to say and it, it might be one of those things that's in your blood, because I haven't been a CFO since 2004, 2005, other than a brief stretch in 2007. And yet I still love it. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of like the old guy. It's like, ah, I can do that better than that person can. I probably can't. You know, deep down, I realize that I probably can't. But uh, it's still um, it's still in the blood. You know, the expression, there's no such thing as a former Marine. Perhaps there's no such thing as a former CFO. I don't know. But uh, yeah, you know, it's an exciting job, far more exciting today than it was back when I was one, I think. So. Now, this is opinion without knowing, get, getting to the, the heart of your work, but your book is Secrets of Rockstar CFOs. By the way, it's coming up, or actually it's two years old, uh, I believe, it came out in 2019. Yes, very good. So CFOs... I think you deal with what I call real CFOs. We live in a world, and again, push back if you want to, I think we live in a world of lots of title inflation. I think that CFO term is being thrown out very loosely, right or wrong or in between. Um, you know, of course, case by case, right? I When I look back when I was a CFO, I think I was actually doing a lot of work that's associated with a controller today. It was a lot of internal controls, compliance, financial reporting, and the elite CFOs are doing work. It's a combination of the old CFOs, chief strategy officers, and chief operating officers. It's it's a strange, in a good way, type of position these days. But you're right. There are some companies where you meet people, they're a CFO, and by title, and it's kind of like, well, they're really a, a controller with you know, a fancy title and, and hopefully for them with a higher paycheck too, that goes with it. So. Uh, good point. And by the way, we don't want to poke fun or belittle controllers. That's how I got my start after public account counting. And I love that work. And, and now there were some people will look back and say, you were kind of like a CFO, but uh, again, we're not putting down controllers. I'm just saying that we, t I think there's a little bit of title inflation, I mean, when I, when I see when I see ads on Indeed for CFO for a ten million dollar company, it's like, yeah, g give me a break. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of that, and 
you know, I'm sure there are $10 million companies out there that need a CFO. But what I've seen, most companies like that, they'll have a really good controller. Right. And they might have like a, a one day a week and maybe less than that type of CFO. And, you know, I know a lot of people that make a living doing that. So I met you a few weeks ago on a Zoom call. We were pr- actually prepping for this conversation. And my net worth has dropped a little bit because of you, Jack. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> well, what I, did I say? Well, what did I do? Well, I re- of course, when I read your book, uh, you're a reader, I can tell. And I could have swore I knew who the first CFO ever was. And I thought the first CFO, now, I don't think he had the title, but he's been he's been referenced as being the first CFO, again, without having that title. And that would be John Jacob Raskob. And I don't know if I'm saying the right, the, the last name correctly, Raskob or Raskob. Uh, I'm not for sure. The, his, he, there's still a generation of that family still living. But he was considered the first CFO ever, and he, he's the one who brought the DuPont family into General Motors. Big-time deal maker. He's the guy, by the way, who built the Empire State Building. Well, not not physically, but with his wallet. Yeah. <laughs> and probably not a great uh, time when he did it either. So, But in your book, you mentioned who you think the first CFO is, which, by the way, I bought, I think, three or four of his books outstanding. So let me shut up and let's hear you talk about the first CFO. Yeah. Well, your uh, Raskob predates Harold Janine. Um, and I, I will admit I hadn't heard of him once. And um, I actually asked a woman, um, she was actually the editor, of, uh, I believe, of CFO magazine. Um, and I asked her, if she knew just, you know, she's been around a few years longer than I have. And I thought she might know. And she immediately said him. And I think she was probably giving he's maybe the first modern CFO because um, and, you know, when I looked into him and, you know, he's almost out of central casting, as they say in Hollywood, uh, quite an interesting guy. But Harold Janine, he was the one that elevated finance to equality with sales and marketing and other functions. It was seen as backward looking and, you know, the ugly redheaded stepchild, if that's not an offensive term. Uh, but, you know, no one really took finance uh, seriously as a strategic way to grow a business. And he did. He took IT&T from, you know, a decent sized mom and pop to at one point there in the Fortune 10. And he did that largely through an M&A and financial strategy that before him, nobody had ever actually executed. So I, I think it was a case of maybe ask the wrong question, get, in this case, a really interesting answer, but but a technically incorrect answer. I guess. I think you're right. Your your fellow does predate mine. I still like your answer. And by the way, thank you for including that name in the book. Because I again, I bought like three of his books. I've not gotten through all three of them, but outstanding. Again, what a brilliant thinker. Well, I thought what we... Yeah. And, you know, it's always a good idea to overthrow a government that you don't get along with, too. I mean, you know, what CFO doesn't want to do something like that, right? You, the government's not friendly. Just have a military coup. Nothing wrong with that at all. So... On that line, uh, let's <laughs> let, let's talk about secrets of rock star CFOs. There are essentially nine big ideas, and I thought what we do just go back and forth. I'll tee it up, so we'll, we'll go through each nine characteristics of a CFO, if that's okay. And like I said, you're mm-hmm. going to talk, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of a little bit of a ping pong match here. But, okay, but think strategically. So, Jack, what do we mean by think strategically? 
Sure. And, you know, again, going back to the old days where it was a backward looking job. In fact, at this, you know, the, undoubtedly you've heard the phrase bean counter. And, um, you, you know, I the first CFO I worked for, he, he kind of was one. You know, he not a bad guy, but he was just this classic old school green shade accountant. And, you know, he called marketing arts and crafts and they called us bean counters. And that's kind of just the way it was. But the modern CFO thinks strategically. It's more of a forward looking type of thing. And the other thing, the management consulting firm Accenture did a study on executive dynamics and they concluded that the most important relationship between any two executives is the CEO and the CFO. And, you know, they don't have to be golfing buddies or anything like that. But if they're not getting along well, the company's going to have some real problems. So you want to be the strategic partner to that CFO, challenge her or him, you know, on things. And, you know, the expression, the emperor has no clothes. Well, in, in the corporate world, sometimes it's up to the CFO to, you know, tell the emperor that. Uh, and, you know, if that relationship's good and you're more than just reporting the facts after they're happening, uh, but making them happen, uh, then you're a strategic CFO. The phrase that I like to use is don't record history, make history. If that makes sense. Great points. By the way, that's a little uncomfortable telling the emperor they don't have clothes. <laughs> yeah, I've never actually had to do that in a literal sense in my career. Regarding thinking strategically, I like to poke fun at some of the consulting firms who have these, and I'm using air quotes, strategic plan uh, templates, templates, uh, or you know what I'm talking about. Sure. I think... Boy, again, it, it's almost becoming cliche-ish uh, to, th- uh, to start thinking like thinking strategically. But I just finished watching The Queen's uh, Gambit. And the way I think of strategy, Jack, is is what's the next move? And I think what's answering that question, what's the next move before the game has started? Mm-hmm. And then when the game is being played, what's the next move? And then when the game is over, what's the next move? And that's not easy. For some people, it does come easy. Just listening to you, I bet answering those questions probably was instinctive uh, for you. But that's one way I view uh, thinking strategically. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, there was a powerful scene. um, You you saw the whole series. Yes, I did. It's outstanding. But yeah, I mean, towards the end when she was playing the Russian grandmaster, and she got the call from her uh, her fanboys in New York, and they were sort of saying they were actually sort of running different scenarios for her. This was, of course, you know, before computers could do it. And they were kind of walking through this, you know, if he does this, do that, that type of stuff. It's a very powerful scene, and it was all about strategy, right? It so. was great, great scene. The next point of a rock star CFO. I almost said CEO because I work with so many CEOs. Ethical leadership. What's on your mind right now? You wrote this in 2019, but what are you thinking today on ethical leadership? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't changed. Maybe it's intensified. But I I think for the CFO, perhaps behaving ethically, kind of a given, you know, they're sure they're occasionally CFOs, but most of them pretty straight shooters. But in the modern world, that's not good enough. The, The leadership piece isn't just you yourself executing well. It's being the ethical example, holding the other executives in the entire company to in a, a code of ethics. Uh, and, you know, it's not cliches and buzzwords. Give it some teeth. Make sure people understand it. 
I've done surveys and I've asked professionals, does your comp- do you even know if your company has a code of ethics? Most people don't. And uh, and then, you know, when you press them a little bit, do you know what's in your code of ethics? And, you know, most people, a lot of people say, yeah, I'm pretty sure we have one. I don't actually know what's in it because I never bothered to. And that's OK, you know, but, you know, just make sure that the company's ethical. And it, it's not just not cheating on your taxes and cheating on your expense reports. Obviously, that's part of it. But, um, you know, it's things like, you know, don't pollute the environment. Uh, you know, treat all of your customers and your employees honorably and ethically and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, one thing I was taught um, before I got married, I, my wife and I are Catholic and we went to this thing called pre-cana. I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, but it's sort of counseling for married couples. And, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't pay that. I didn't get that much from all of it. I'll admit I was doing it for my wife. But there was one line that the priest said, which has stuck with me throughout. And he said, when's the most difficult time to commit adultery? The first. And the point is, once you've made an ethical compromise, it's really easy to make the second and the third and the fourth. Great. Think of it that way. Just don't make the ethical, don't make the first ethical compromise because, you know, you're sweating bullets and, you know, maybe the whole adultery thing's, you know, inappropriate. but is an analogy. I think it works. But, you know, the first time you cheat on a tax return or something like that, you probably feel terrible about it and you're sweating bullets and you can't sleep. But then the second time, well, you know, that, that wasn't so bad. No one really got hurt by it. Let me do it again and again and again. So just always uh, behave ethically and hold yourself and the company to a culture of accountability. I'm not going to add to your comments, but I'm going to ask you a question. And okay. I'm not I'm not expecting us to be saints. No one can be. But should we also be thinking about having a moral compass in addition to being an ethical leader? Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, definitely you you, you should always be thinking of a compass right and wrong because, um, you, you know, to your point, yeah, we're not all saints. And, you know, CFOs for the most part aren't famous. I'm going to go to limb on, say, the most famous CFO is Andy Fastow of Enron. And Andy, Andy was a model citizen up until the time that he wasn't. Right. And I, I've actually spoken to him. He's a, you know, he regrets what he's done. He's, he's a good guy. I mean, I, you know, my guess is you'd really like him. He's a likable guy. He doesn't make excuses for what he does, but yet, you know, he did what he did. Right. And it was the type of situation. He just let his moral compass go. It was the energy f- field that he was working in. It had recently been deregulated and his job was to sort of find ways to exploit the absence of regulation. Uh, you know, strictly speaking, he may not have broken a bunch of laws, but, you know, that doesn't mean what he did wasn't wrong. Um, you know, I, I've compared Andy to the guy at a bank robbery who drives the getaway car, didn't actually do the robbery, but helped the other people get away with it. He's still guilty, but, you, you know, it's just it, it's a different crime, I think, that he committed. So, yeah, the, your personal compass, you're going to look, we're human, we're going to make our mistakes. You minimize them and you forgive yourself and learn from them when you do make them, whether they be ethical or just general. We'll be right back. Money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? 
Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Next characteristic of a rock star CFO. By the way, this is this is great stuff, Jack. Uh, master deal making. Master deal making. What's what's on your mind right now? Sure. And again, going back to the old days, I started as an auditor, and auditors and accountants. There was a really kind of insulting analogy, but we were the guys with the bayonets. We didn't actually do any fighting, but when there were dead bodies on the ground, we'd go and stab them to make sure they were really dead. And that's what people thought of accountants and auditors and finance and accounting people generally. We didn't make it happen. We just reported what happened after the fact. Now it's CFOs are truly on the front line. They're actually proactively looking for acquisition opportunities, whether it's acquiring a competitor or an upcoming technology or getting acquired. Uh, They're getting creative with joint venture types of stuff. Uh, If they're raising capital, whether it be in the public or private markets, they're deeply involved in that. And, you know, I, that part's not new. I remember one time I was raising venture capital and the president of the company, good guy, but, you know, he was a sales guy and it came through in his presentations, you know, that, that he was selling a little bit. And inevitably, whenever we do a a presentation, he'd do 95% of the talking, I'd do 5%. But what, you know, he didn't know is just about every time I would get a phone call afterwards. It's like, okay, uh, how much of that was BS and how much wasn't. And, you know, the truth of the answer is he believed every word that he said. He wasn't lying. But, you know, this is what you need to be cautious about. So CFOs, because of the trust factor, they play an integral part in deal making. A lot of them meet with customers regularly. In fact, one of the uh, one CFO I interviewed for the book, she told me when she gets a new job, uh, what she does is she calls the CFOs at the 10 biggest customers. And she's not selling. That's not her purview. It's just relationship building. And are you happy? And, you know, I'll say, you know, at the beginning of COVID, it was a phenomenal to have those relationships in place, right? Because you want to just trust, yeah, that, you know, when a salesperson says, yeah, you know, XYZ, they're going to, you know, only cut 5%. Well, she can actually call the CFO at XYZ and say, this is what I'm hearing. Is this true? And, you know, can can we help you? You know, would extended payment terms make a difference? So there are any other other things we can do to, to help you and you can help us at the same time. So, you know, they're involved in deal making every significant deal and most of the minor deals. A CFO's fingerprints are going to be on it. And often they're even starting it. You are hitting a couple of points that maybe didn't hit the book, but the the CFO who wants to meet the CEO of all the big customers I think that's remarkable. But what you're telling me is that she has great people skills. Uh, so she's not just that technical oriented uh, intellectual, but again, great uh, dealing with people. And yeah, she, her people skills are off the charts. I'm, I'm sure her analytical skills are good too. It, you know, it's, it's not like you can be a successful CFO just on the strength of your personality and charisma. But yeah, I mean, she's very, very high on the emotional intelligence and leadership and communications. The next item, the next characteristic or character, you know, we'll say characteristic, elite teams. Now, I'm excited. I'm interested in hearing 
we have to say about elite teams. So what's your thought today compared to say maybe two years ago when you wrote this? Yeah. And it's, um, well, when I wrote it, we were probably in, uh, you know, the greatest talent shortage in history, right? You, you couldn't pick up the business press in 2019 without coming across the phrase war for talent, particularly in the innovation sector, right? I mean, everybody was poaching everybody else's engineers and whatnot. So as a CFO, again, um, they're very trusted. And just a story I can give you, I probably shouldn't say who, but I, it's a company, I guarantee you've used them. And so the CFO, early stage, the company was three years old at the time. They hadn't yet become the icon that they are today. But they were just talking. They could not recruit engineers and just couldn't get them. And the CFO said, how many did you need? And he said, OK, I'll get them. Who are the ones that are on the fence? And he basically set up lengthy one-on-one meetings with like, you know, seven engineers with the goal of getting five of them. And, you know, that did a couple of things. One, because CFOs generally are trusted. He just gave them the straight dirt. This is why I think your career would do well to come to this company and why we're going to be one of the next big things in Silicon Valley. So there was a there was a certain trust factor that if the president or the VP of sales said the exact same thing, it's perhaps not as credible coming from the, the lips of a CFO. And the other, it was simply flattering to the candidate. That's like, hey, look at this. The CFO wants to get to know me. What a great company that the CFO is taking time to get to know a candidate. So, uh, you know, he told me he was really successful. So the recruiting isn't just within the world of finance and accounting, but it's company-wide. Great, great. Oh, great point. And then, you you know, the, the tip I would give CFOs, tell me when you're thinking of your team. And again, I work, a lot of the CFOs I work for with theoretically at least growing companies. And they, they'll tell you, you know, think, what are you going to need three years out? And, you know, don't hire for today necessarily. Hire the team, you know, get people who are intellectually curious, who are going to grow with you, uh, who have the same passion and the same work ethic that you have. And get those people, even if you're overpaying them a little bit. You know, some people say hire athletes, not position players. I think there's an element of that in there, too. I wrote down three words in thinking about elite teams. I wrote down finding getting and then developing. So you have to be really good at all three and it's not just mm-hmm. the HR person. So that CFO you're describing now he or she was really focusing on that, that getting, but, but just being able to find and then get and then developing, in my opinion of those three, I think developing may be the hardest, unless you're dealing with someone who's just very good at, at coaching people up, uh, leading people upward. Yeah, it's difficult because, um, you, you know, you want to develop them to realize their potential and then you do. And then, you know, you get a controller who's a rock star and you, you know, teach him or her whatever, you know, they need. And also they're extremely marketable as a CFO for, you know, 30% more plus an option package, whatever it is. But, you know, you, you want to hire talented people, keep them motivated and they'll stay with you. But uh, one CFO um, that I know, I, I didn't quote in the book, but she she actually talks about the controllers who have worked for her during the course of her career. And she's at one point, she told me she's had 12 controllers report into her and nine of them are CFOs today. And she brags about that the way colleges brag about their alumni. She I mean, should. She bragging's not fair, but she's very proud that, you know, maybe they would have been CFOs anyway, but she's very proud that she played a part in helping them get the job. And, you know, she's self-confident in her own ability to recruit recruit and develop an adequate replacement. 
And she was thrilled to see them go on to CFO type jobs. So, you know, that is the problem when you hire talented people and you, you you know, you do run the risk of losing them. But, you know, what are you going to do? Hire untalented people? Probably not. Right. So the next characteristic, we could spend a whole hour, maybe a day talking about this. Learn continuously. I'm guessing that is a non-issue for CFOs, yet you included it in the book. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, their intellectual curiosity is one of the big things. And there's kind of the formal and informal thing. And, you know, candidly, like with the pace of technology changing right now, and it's always changed, but it seems like, and you tell me if you disagree, but it seems like the last two or three years, Mark, that it's really accelerated. Yes. And it's, it could almost be a full-time job just learning current technologies, right? And, you know, CFOs can't do that other than like at a high level, how it can be deployed strategically. But, um, but yeah, they, they like to challenge themselves, always develop new skills. And, you know, the average first-time CFO is like 36 years old, I think. I read that somewhere. So still pretty young. You know, you haven't gotten it figured out all quite yet at 36, even though you think you do. So, but, you know, a lot of them, there's sort of the formal and the informal aspects of learning, you know, maybe get an MBA if you're into that sort of thing, whatever it might be. Um, and, but then the, the informal is take on a mentor. Every person I spoke to, and I, I interviewed 40 something CFOs for the book, every one of them had a mentor at some point in their career. And a few of them have some coaches. I, myself, I, have you ever hired a coach, Mark? Like yes. Coach? Yes. Yeah. Me too. And he's great. And, you know, it's funny, my, my dad's always a good fountain of advice for me. And I was debating whether or not I really needed a coach or would benefit by a coach. And he said, you know, Tom Brady works with a coach in the off season. And he said, do you think you're a better executive than he is a quarterback? And I'm like, uh, no. He's like, well, maybe you should think about getting a little coaching then, you know, and maybe they can help you figure some things out. So, and it, it was good advice, you know, and, you know, a lot of them, it, mentoring's free. You know, it's the time commitment, but, you know, coaching costs money. But if, you know, enough of the, enough of people I've spoken to have done it. And I don't re, cannot recall a single person who regretted getting coaching. Now, I know people that didn't work well with a particular coach. That's different, though, right? Then you just find a coach that's better suited to you. So. One of my favorite memoirs. Now, he had a ghostwriter, but Andre Agassi, when he won, uh, I think he won Wimbledon. And not too soon after that, he fell into this deep, deep valley, uh, fell into a dark area. And what got him out of it was he had not one, not two, but three coaches. He had a new tennis coach, a new strength and conditioning coach, and then a spiritual coach. Took took them with oh my. everywhere. And by the way, he hated tennis. But between those three, he fell in love with tennis really for the first time. And he climbs back to number one in the world phenomenal individual. And so when you say everyone having a coach, that's usually the book I think of why we need to have coaches. Uh, I'm going to hit coaches in a minute. Okay. But let's talk about board relationships. When we were getting, when we were prepping for this, uh, you'd made some comments, great, great feedback. So again, in my world, I work mainly with private companies. We don't work with VC money. We work with owners' uh, money. And so I, I, I'm not really that part of the public traded company world or the VC world. So talk to us a little bit about board relationships and why those are so important. Yeah, you know, I, I think just 
meeting a board members one-on-one, it's a critical thing for a CFO to do. And, you know, there are some CEOs that don't want their CFOs to do it. And I would say, well, you know, why? What is it that you're trying to hide? But it just, there's the filter off. You know, as a CFO, a lot of us have sat in board meetings that, you know, again, the CEO, if the CEO actually crosses the line and lies, then you've got to speak up. Maybe not in the present moment, although maybe in the present moment, uh, depending upon the circumstances. You, you don't want to call someone a liar in front of the board. But, you know, if, if it's one thing if the CEO is a cockeyed optimist. It's another thing if the CEO is a liar. But, you know, either way, you just want to have some unfiltered conversations with your board. It'll make you a better CFO because, you know, board members, they do represent the stockholders. And, you know, if you're serving their needs, then you're serving the company's needs better and whatnot. And, you know, the other thing from a career perspective, it's it's a wonderful thing, too. My world's a little different than yours. And most of the CFOs I know and when I was a CFO are with venture-backed companies. So, you know, a typical board member might serve on, you know, the board of five, six companies. And so, you know, if the average tenure of a CFO is three years, it's a beautiful thing if you've got a couple of venture capitalists who are on multiple boards who like you and would want to hire you at one of their other companies. So it's it's actually a wonderful career management tool as well. But I, I just think you'll understand how you can serve stockholders and business generally better by having those relationships. And again, I, I didn't mean to say that you're tattletaling on the CEO because it's not that at all. Uh, hopefully, I mean, there are other occasions, maybe it would be, but you know, a normal thing, it's just a good business practice, even if your CEO is a saint. I would also add, and I could have added this on learn continuously, but on board relationships for those listening who work in the private sec, well, private companies where there is no VC backed up money, I would say to that person to start building your own personal board of advisors. And again, we could have added this a couple of minutes ago when we were talking about lifelong learning. And I would just say that that board of advisors can be people who are same age, but also maybe 5, 10, 15, even 20 years older. doesn't have to be financial types. It can be non-financial types, but uh, you gain a lot through those board relationships. You're learning a lot. And I'm not just talking about work of the business, what's going on right now. They're, they're picking up things about, well, other boards that they're serving on other companies. So that's just why I'm saying consider building that personal board of advisors. And I'm talking non-paid advisors for, for that individual. Do, Do you agree? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, you, you know, one thing I, I encourage CFOs and most of them aren't comfortable with it, but like work on your personal brand, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, maybe hire a branding coach or just somebody that can help you a little bit because, you know, the saying, you can either define your brand or it can define you. And way back when for CFOs, just doing good work was the brand, but that's no longer the case anymore. And you also mentioned having coaches that, you know, maybe a little bit further along in their career, but don't also underestimate the value of having a younger coach. Good point. You know, yeah. I, I had a Gen Z. Um, I actually hired her when she was 16 years old and she worked for me part-time all through college. And, you know, she graduated at the wrong time in COVID and she didn't get a job right away. So I had her, you know, as a colleague almost a year after she graduated, she left within the last month or so, but I learned a lot from her, you know, and, and some of it's technology. And again, she's not making me a coder, but just, Hey, what do you think of this? 
But the other thing is, you know, growing companies, they want to hire Gen Z. You know, it's the, it's the most educated generation in the history of this country. There's a lot of diversity. You know, they, they just bring a lot of energy to it. And, you know, candidly, they, they tend to work a little bit more cheaply too, right? Which isn't a bad thing. And, you know, it would be easier for me to recruit Gen Z people having worked for Katie for, you know, all those years and, and understanding the generation a little bit. So. Unfortunately, we don't have anything controversial to talk about. Even our next topic, I'm so I'm so on board. Perform cross-functionally. So Rockstar CFOs can perform cross-functionally. Take it away. Sure. Well, uh, Judy Romano, who's one of my closest friends and a, a world-class CFO, um, she once told me, don't think of yourself as a financial executive. Think of yourself as an enter- enterprise-wide executive who happens to be a financial expert. And, you know, it's it's sort of the same thing, but as a mindset, it's useful, right? You know, you, you are expected to understand sales, marketing, operations, strategy, human resources, other than maybe the CEO and whoever the top HR person is. The CFO is probably, you know, second or third most cross-functional job in the entire company. And it's just important that you understand the entire job because you are likely the only financial expert on the team. So the, the better you understand the business and the strategy, you know, the better things off you're going to be. You mentioned earlier a little about title inflation. And I, of course, I'm not going to say who, but I know a CFO and I'm not convinced this guy knows what his company does. I, I think I might have a better feel, for, you know, but, he, you know, all he does is kind of close the books a little bit and he's. He's not a value-add CFO. He just sort of accounting and finance is a cost center, and that's about it. And he's fine, you know. I'm, I'm not knocking it, but, you know, it's, it's not what I think of as sort of a cross-functional CFO. And, did, you know, one example I like to give, did you see the movie The Intern? Yes. Okay. So there was, I don't know if you remember the opening scene with Anne Hathaway's character. Uh, her name was Jules. But the opening scene, she was on the customer support desk. And at that point, I'm not sure that the viewer knew that she was the president of the company. And she was, I think they sold bridesmaids dresses to this customer. She was just sort of helping them get the packaging. And well, uh, Anne Hathaway actually shadowed an executive and picked that up from her, that this real life executive um, who was in a similar, like an internet business that sells clothing, um, actually spent half a day a week on the support desk. Talking to real customers, you know, why did you buy it? What was that experience like? What was the delivery like? And there's a lot to be learned for that, right? You know, I'm, I'm not saying that CFOs should go on this customer support desk. You, you might make things worse than better. I don't know, but that depends on your business, I suppose. But, you know, it's understanding what your customers are all about and why they buy your company's products. Not a bad thing for a CFO to understand. Great movie, by the way. Hey, you actually took one of my definitions of what a CFO is and the way I like to define a CFO, and I, I say this to every CEO I work with and CFO, they are a financial expert who could take the job of the CEO for one whole year and there's no drop in sales, no drop in customer dedication or commitment, no drop in sales. I said sales, but no drop in operations no drop in the support functions, and then also no drop in the value of the business. In fact, maybe it goes up a little bit. And then after that one year, they are more than happy to give the keys back to the CEO. And that's my definition of a CFO. But you kind of said that. 
Yeah, it, it's um, and you know historically the the track record of CFOs getting to CEO type jobs, it wasn't really all that good until pretty recently. Um, right. You know, a lot of times if they'd get it, it's because the company was in financial distress and they wanted a financial expert to be making the core decisions. You know, they weren't given the opportunities. But more and more, you're getting um, you know great CFOs who are becoming very successful CFOs. Uh, the the C, CEO of Best Buy. Uh, I forget uh, Corey is her first name. I forget her last name, but she was the CFO and she promoted him to it. Right. Uh, very cross-functional type of executive. Um, you know, so there are a lot of stories like that of, you know, CFOs taking it over and yeah, sometimes even being better CEOs than their boss and how you described it. That's perfect. If the board or the investors or whomever feels that the CFO could run it in a year, if they had to, that's a great CFO to have on your team. Right. So Next one, maintaining financial expertise. I've been I've been anxious to hear your answer or your comment on this. So, rock star CFOs can maintain financial expertise. Yeah, I mean it. To some people, it seems obvious, right? I mean, the the F in CFO does stand for financial, but there are a lot of CFOs who just kind of forget about that fact. They, you know, they want to be in the strategy. They want to be in the operations whatever it might be, and they neglect the finance. And there was a, a company, um, a, again, it, it was in the newspaper, but I, I still don't want to say it, uh, but I know the CFO, but the company, they had huge revenue recognition misstatements. And the, the company literally, it was a public company, they lost 90% of their market value. And uh, the CFO explained it wasn't his responsibility. It was the controller's responsibility. He said, I'm a strategic CFO. You knew that when you hired me. It's not my fault. And, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, the, the lawyers for the plaintiffs that were going to sue the executive team, they must have loved that answer. You know, and I'm sure that other people just wanted to shoot the guy. But you actually, you know, if you're a public company, every quarter you're signing the financial statements that say these are accurate and and whatnot. And, you know, you, you don't have to be a gap expert the way maybe 20 years ago you would have to have been. But you still need to know your stuff. Uh, you know, you still, yeah, you can hire a strong account, strong controller or chief accounting officer, but fundamentally you're putting your, your name to pen and you, you know, when you're signing off, you're responsible. And the other thing is it's not all about gap either. Uh, more and more it's about KPI. So, you know, gap has its place, but there are inherent limitations to a rules-based financial reporting system. So, you know, KPIs are key performance indicators for the three people in your audience who might not know. Um, but uh, they, um, you know, they're very useful to the non-accounting world because accounting rules are arcane and technical and people don't care about them anymore. But what are the really important metrics to help business people understand how your company's really doing above and beyond gap? That's where a great CFO can add value by identifying the meaningful key performance indicators and helping the audience understand what they are and what they mean. So I would also add Jack that maintaining financial expertise is closely tied to learning uh, continuously mm -hmm. because just keeping up to date what's new and yeah, you don't have to be an expert, but at some point you need to know the right questions to be asking. You don't have to know the answer. Just make sure you know the question to be asking and someone on the team can go figure out whatever it is where someone needs to be an expert. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, if you ask the right questions, eventually you'll get the right answers. So, the next one is hard. This one may be, in fact, you're nodding work life 
balance. And I just finished a book this past month. I'll bring it up uh, here in a bit, but I want to hear you talk about work-life balance. Is that an issue with some of the CFOs that you coach, mentor, and the people you're a sounding board for? Yeah. I mean, I was surprised when I was talking to the CFOs for this book because work ethic of CFO is second to none, right? I mean, you know, they, they work really hard. Um, so I was surprised that it came up as often as it did. And I think probably ethical leadership came up the most often, and this might've been second or third, but yeah, you know, they, they do make it a point to don't just work all the time. And there's, you know, outside of the book, you know, there's enough research that there's a strong correlation between people who exercise are better corporate performers because they have higher energy. And, you know, when you get those crazy 90 hour weeks that you've got to, you know, once in a while, we all have to do that. You're better prepared for it because you're physically strong and you're mentally strong. So, you know, they made the point just about all of them exercise pretty regularly. And I'm not talking about doing an Ironman triathlon. I mean, God love you if you can. Um, but, you know, do you know, I I work out 40 minutes a day, five days a week. It's enough. It's a mental and emotional release and it keeps my body physically going. You know, do some yoga, whatever it might be. But then, you know, there are other things, you know, if you have young kids, you know, don't don't skip the school plays, you know, go to the sporting events, whatever it might be, you know, go, go to the school musicals, you know, be involved with your children's lives. Don't be that parent that never sees their kids, um, you know, take vacations, right? Um, they, companies back in the day didn't start giving vacations because it was nice. Uh, what they noticed is that employees actually perform better when they were able to take breaks every now and then. So even if you don't want to do it yourself, be a, be loyal to the company and take the damn vacation and you'll be a better employee for the company. So I did not yeah. write, I did not write down the title of the book, but the last CFO, she's the former CFO for Lehman brothers. And mm-hmm. I think she might've been the last one, uh, but her name is, and I hope I do not butcher her last name, Aaron Callen. Does that ring a bell? A yeah, I, yeah, she was there when yeah, in '97, whatever it was, or it was after that. But yeah, C A L L A N. We'll have the book title in the show notes. But her book, every CFO should read that book. And again, I apologize for not having that title in front of me. But she, she was. You talk about a workaholic. I mean, this goes all the way back to when she was in junior high, gymnastics, mm-hmm. then tennis. Uh, gets a law degree putting in just Buku's hours. So every position she had, she didn't have a family life. And finally it was for her enough is enough. And again, the, I don't want to give too much away, but when I saw that work-life balance, I thought of Erin and I'm sure she'd have a lot to say to add to this. She'd say, yeah, it's not all about uh, work. So not at all. I'm looking over your shoulder and uh, your, your audience can't see it, but you've got an impressive stack of books. So I'll go on a limb and guess that you're a well-read guy. A little. <laughs> a little bit. How, how many books a year do you read? Uh, it varies. Sometimes 120, 130 books. And, and okay. that, that, wow. that includes audio as well. And then there are a lot of books I don't count. You know, I'll just skim through them real quickly. Like these, a stack you see behind me, those are physical. I, I usually buy mm-hmm. Kindle. But like those Janine books, if I said his name yeah, correctly, yeah. Uh, th- those are physical books. I think he's in that that stack. So, but I I read because for me it's an instinct. I just enjoy reading. I don't even tell people you need to go read. You know, go find a different way to where you uh, can, can learn. 
But yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I didn't read for years. I started maybe seven or eight years ago. And um, it was one of those things like I'd read between, you know, the week between Christmas and New Year. And I'd read and I'd say, damn, I forgot how much I like to read. And, uh, you know, and, and CFOs, when I talk to them, they all of them read, you know, the elite ones I spoke to. And it's, it's not just business books either. They'll read history. They'll read biography. They'll read, you know, fiction, whatever it might be. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I've been trying to, you know, uh, just read more. I, I'm nowhere near at your level. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine challenged me. He said, just read 12 books a year, one a month. You can do that. Can't That's you? enough. Yeah, and it's a good start. And they're going to No, I, I did three of them the week between Christmas and the new year, but I still did it. So I, I have a theory on why some CFOs may not read. A lot of us came from the accounting world, right? Mm-hmm. And if we came from the accounting world, what do we have to take the CPA exam? So we were so burned out with all that technical uh, reading. And then those first controllership positions, again, lots of technical reading. And so that's my theory of why some people uh, may not pick up a book. So I think the key is just picking up a really good book. First business book I ever read, uh, Barbarians at the Gate. And I thought, this was not hard reading. This was fun uh, reading. So I, I think if you start reading the right books, even CEOs, I get frustrated that they read too many of these method books, you know, how to mm-hmm. books. No, read biographies, read memoirs, read autobiographies, read some philosophy, you know, get, don't even think about business. It's going to have a big impact. And I would say yeah. the same thing for us. Yeah. There are great business books out there, but there's, there's just a lot more to it. You know, read a biography of John Adams uh, or Abe Lincoln or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, there's just so much great stuff out there. And I, I don't know if you know, Phil Graham. Oh, absolutely. The, uh, yep. Yeah, he was the senator from Texas. And, you know, being from Massachusetts, I, I don't always have a lot in common with senators from Texas. But he said something that was really interesting, I thought. He said that when he goes to a library, it makes him cry. And, you know, you're wondering why. But he said because there are just so many great books there and he's not going to be able to read anything but a small fraction of them. You mentioned that in the book. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, and it, it's interesting, right? That, uh, that, you know, senators are probably busier than CFOs. I don't know for sure, but, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that they work all the time. But uh, yeah. Jack, we'll, we'll have to do this again. This has been fantastic. Uh, so as we wrap up, I just have a few more questions if it's okay. Sure. So mm-hmm. we're talking about rock star CFOs, but what about the person who's not a CFO yet? Just, just while we have you on the horn, just some sound bites. What what's needed for that person to get to be in the CFO seat? Yeah, I would say you know the first one is walk the floor. Uh, you, you know that's an outdated expression when we used to be a manufacturing country, but understand what it is that your company does and how it does it. Ask a lot of questions, but you know talk to the engineers, talk to customers, talk to your sales and marketing people fundamentally understand what it is that your company does uh, for a living. And, you know, I would say get a mentor or a coach, you know, a controller, you know, they, they make good money these days, but, you know, maybe a coach is still, if the company's not paying for it, maybe, you know, maybe a little bit out, but, you know, find a mentor who just believes in you and, and, you know, has a vested interest in your career. And, you know, one thing on that, like one of the uh, people I interviewed, she was a CFO for a huge uh, consumer products company. But um, she told me her mentor was, um, when she was a controller, wanted to become a CFO, 
her mentor was um, a VP of sales. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Why'd you do that? And he, and she said, look, debits and credits, I know I'm better than my boss. Uh, you know, it's not that she couldn't learn from him. She wasn't saying that, but the finance stuff I got, but she thought if she brought a sales focused approach to the job, that would help her get a CFO job and make her more successful when she got it. So, you know, think about getting a mentor who can develop some things and then, you know, work on the leadership type of stuff, you know, take on, you know, be, learn to become a better communicator, um, you know, try to develop your emotional IQ a little bit. It's sort of, it's formed, but you can certainly learn some things. My coach told me that I was passive aggressive, which are, I had to look it up after he told me that I didn't know if it was a compliment or an insult, but um, you know, just, you know, sort of think about yourself and how to communicate with others. Cause it is now a leadership and communications job, not a technical accounting type of job. So those are some areas I'd focus on. I think. Last question. Okay. We've been, we've been, we've been talking about books. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've asked you some of your favorite books. What are, what are some of the books that have been made a difference in your life? Maybe they've been transformative or uh, they've been books you've gifted to other people. What are some of your favorites? Uh, business or otherwise or whatever. Both. Either um, or. Yeah, I'd say the book that changed me the most or the, in high school was The Catcher in the Rye. Um, and, you know, I, I read, you know, the books that a lot of American, you have that. Oh, I my have. goodness. Yeah, it, it's on that bookshelf that you cannot see. Okay, uh, but I don't doubt it at all, folks. He's got like about a million books behind him. So, uh, but, you know, that was the first book. And I read a lot of great books before that. But, you know, I Great Expectations, I love. But I didn't identify with Pip from Great Expectations. I love that book. Yeah, fantastic book. But I, I didn't say Pip is me. Holden Caulfield, I felt like that uh, Salinger must have been like me when he was younger and, or based Holden upon somebody that, that he knew was like me because you know, I, I wasn't quite as clever as Holden was, and I, I certainly didn't have the adventures he had. But, you know, a lot of it was just Holden in his long-winded style, sharing his observations with the reader. And uh, I just so identified with it. So that would be one, like, from fiction that I really loved. Um, in terms of a business book that I really liked, um, I'm going to go with, uh, in fact, we sort of brought it up a little bit earlier, but... You ever heard of this one? Questions of the answer. I have, Harold. I have it, but I have not read it. Okay. It's a good book, but it's actually, you touched upon it earlier where it's all about asking the right questions. And, you know, it's sort of difficult to discipline yourself to this methodology because you're, you're probably like me. I'm going to guess you just want to jump in and, and answer something right away. Right. But he's like, resist the urge, just ask a question and another question and another question and another question. And eventually the answers will become apparent. So, you know, I think in terms of somebody, you know, building a business, this is probably as good a book as you're going to come across. But, you know, we, we're lucky we live in a time there are all sorts of great business books out there, right? So I'm going to move it up the list. Okay, there you go. So, yeah. And uh, Hal, uh, do, do you think he looks like me? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yes. It's kind of funny because I met Hal. He spoke at a conference that I organized. And uh, that's how I became familiar with the book. And I was getting texts from my friends. He was up on stage and people were like, is that your brother? I mean, <laughs> Did he sign it? Uh, he, I do have a signed copy at home, but uh, yeah, he's an MIT professor. 
um, you know, very well regarded and, you know, just a, a generally good guy, but, you know, an interesting guy, he actually had a heart attack on stage once he was telling us and, and, you know, he sort of knew that he had to turn his life around a little bit, literally up on stage, he was having heart palpitations and it come off and just committed himself. He got in really good shape. I'm going to say he was in his late fifties and he started from the guy who had a heart attack. A couple of years later, he was climbing Everest. Remarkable. Remarkable guy. Yeah, that's the the one thing about MIT. You meet some really fascinating folks. And speaking of coaches, I bet he took a Sherpa with him. <laughs> well, he, I'm I, sure. Exactly. I didn't think to ask, but I'm going to guess that, yes, that you, was made You available. set yourself up for that one. <laughs> Jack, this, I certainly would take a Sherpa. This, this was outstanding. This was phenomenal. Hey, before we go, t tell us about your work real quickly. Sure. I'm the president of the CFO Leadership Council. We're, a, we're about 1,800 members, primarily across North America, but we've got some in every every continent, certainly not every country, I wish. Uh, but our mission is simply to empower CFOs, and we do that. We have an incredible uh, network of CFOs that are just really into helping each other, and never more so than the past year, like when the PPP loans came out, you know, they were, they were giving each other seminars. This is what you need to know. This It was phenomenal. So I'm the president of that. Uh, I, as you know, I wrote the book Secrets of Rockstar CFOs. I'm actually working on my second book, which will probably be available in June. It's called The Psychopathic CEO, uh, a Executive Survival Guide. So that, that, that will be an excuse to bring you back on, right? To talk about that? Yeah, well, I'd love to come back on. And, you know, I did, um, what inspired me to do it is we actually had an FBI agent speak at one of our events. And the topic was The Psychopathic CEO. And as she was describing what to look for, I'm like, holy, dope, I almost swore, holy gosh, um, I uh, I worked for somebody like that. Then she said, by show of hands, how many people think that they might have worked for a psychopath? And I was like, half of us. And, you know, so I've been studying it. And here's a scary statistic. According to one study, 21% of American CEOs might be psychopathic. 21%. We that's higher than the prison population. That's interesting. We had on last summer the CFO, the former CFO for Health South, and okay. the CEO who ran that company was definitely a psychopath. <laughs> I mean, if you yeah. there's a book about how how that company just came down, and and I, I agree with you absolutely. I, I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, it should be a, a good read. I mean, the. I'm not a medical professional, you know, so I'm, it's a business book. It's not a, a clinical book. And, but, you know, I, th I think there's enough lessons in there. And certainly my members have been very forthcoming with some of their own war stories about, you know, what they've dealt with. And I mean, some of them would be funny if they weren't true. I mean, but I mean, one funny one, probably more a narcissist than a psychopath, but there was a guy, he, uh, for whatever reason, he had a giant picture of himself in his office. And just to be clear, the picture was of him, not him and his wife and kids or something like that. And he used to apparently used to kiss it pretty right. <laughs> his own picture. It's like, oh, boy, there's there's some. But, you know, he was actually a fairly good CEO. If you could get over the fact that he was just a little bit uh, a little vain, I think it's fair to say. But that's probably more a narcissist than a psychopath. So, again, this has been great. Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy.
Jack McCullough, the CFO of all CFOs. That's what I like to call him. You are a rock star CFO yourself, and you have an open invitation to this show anytime you want. Hey, by the way, I now remember the two book titles that I could not remember earlier. We were talking about work-life balance. We mentioned Erin Callen. She was the former CFO at Lehman Brothers. Her book is Full Circle, a memoir of leaning in too far and the journey back. Highly recommend it. And when we were talking about the psychopath CEOs, I could not remember the title, only the name of the business. Uh, former CFO Aaron Beam wrote Health South, the Wagon to Disaster. Now, we've had Aaron on the show, and he would agree with you, Jack, about the psychopath CEO. He said he worked for one in Richard Scrushy. Next week, we'll have on a marketing genius who knows a thing or two about strategy. He was a marketing mastermind behind the Windows 95 launch and... He was instrumental in the MSN turnaround. His name is Brad Chase. He's the author of Strategy First. That's a conversation I'm looking forward to. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.